0: Okay, I'm Susan Rivera, and I'm a professor at the University of California at Davis, where I work in neurodevelopmental disorders, namely Fragile X syndrome and autism. And at UC Davis, there's the, the UC Davis MIND Institute, stands for Medical Investigation of Neurodevelopmental Disorders. We have a very large focus on autism research there, but also a very large clinic for Fragile X syndrome.
1: Can you, can you tell us more about Fragile X syndrome?
0: Yes, Fragile X syndrome is a very interesting syndrome to work in because it's a single gene disorder. So we have actually know the gene responsible for Fragile X syndrome. It's very related to autism spectrum disorders, too. So when we see children in the clinic that have Fragile X syndrome, about 30 to 40 percent of those children will also be diagnosed with autism spectrum disorders. So we know that we have the single gene disorder. We know the protein on the gene responsible for fragile X syndrome, so the protein product of the FMR1 gene called FMRP is very important. And it's important not only because when it's turned off, bad things happen to the brain. It's also important in, in typical development. So the FMR1 gene is responsible for lots of brain processes, including dendritic spine formation and the connection between neurons. So we study Fragile X syndrome um, as a spectrum disorder. Much as people talk about autism as a spectrum disorder, you can have different levels of functioning um, within the Fragile X spectrum. So you can have premutation carriers who's... So wait a second, what what, what does it look like? I mean, how, how does somebody know if they have a Fragile X? Fragile X syndrome. That is, if you have 200 or more CGG repeats on this region of the I X see. chromosome, or the that? FMR1 C- G- C- G- CGG. So these are trinucleotide repeats. In, I'm sure in, everybody's going to know exactly <laughs> what that is. We're about genetics here. Yeah? <laughs> That's yeah. genetics, okay. right? And uh, so it's de- defined uh, sort of molecularly that way. Behaviorally, those who have fragile X typically have intellectual impairment or mental retardation, Um, that is a full, full mutation child. Girls are less affected, so they can have all the way up to almost normal cognitive functioning because they have another X chromosome that, unless they're incredibly unlucky, is typically fine. So they do have some protein expression. Whereas boys with only one X chromosome actually typically have that gene methylated or turned off and so they're getting no FMRP, no protein product, from this very important gene. So by studying it as a spectrum, what we've been able to do is sort of look at the dose response of this gene. So how much protein are you expressing? How much messenger RNA are you expressing? And how does that affect brain development?
2: So this is happening from birth. This is happening before birth, right? This is Correct. These are the things that are going on when the mother's pregnant?
0: At the cellular level, yes. And, um, and Fragile X is a repeat expansion kind of uh, syndrome so that you it is, it is inherited from the parents.
1: Hey, you're doing some very practical research, aren't you? I, I mean, when I mean practical, you're using human beings and you're trying to derive remedies for the situation. Right?
0: Yes, our research is both sort of general science in nature, so just looking at what this gene does, how it affects the brain, what pathways it does and doesn't affect. But we're also very interested in treatment at our clinic.
1: So so tell us about what is going on as a result of your studies in terms of treatment.
0: So we have many different treatment trials going on in Fragile X right now. We're looking at uh, different compounds. We're looking at sertraline, which is a type of SSRI. Zoloft. (laughs) Zoloft, yes. Um, We're looking at minocycline, which is actually a a type of... uh, Tetracycline, tetracycline um, and other other compounds as well. So um, we, you know, there are many different targets for uh, fragile X syndrome. And what we're doing is looking at the behavior of the children and trying to target those behaviors using okay. using different drugs.
2: And I was curious. You, it's fragile X is now the <clears throat> most common inherited of the mental retardation? That's correct. Do you think it always was, or, or it has? do we have any idea if the incidence has gone up? Sort of like the question about autism, everybody's saying incidence has likely gone up. Maybe it was underdiagnosed.
0: Right. Unlike autism, we don't have any data showing that the incidence of fragile X syndrome has gone up. The um, The finding of the gene responsible for Fragile X allowed us to test for Fragile X, Uh thereby it has been diagnosed more, Um, Mm -hmm. but presumably the the incidence itself has not necessarily risen. So we don't know? We don't know for sure. There Uh are what we call founder effects in Fragile X syndrome, so that if you have a community of people who are living in an isolated region, you're going to get larger amounts of Fragile X. It is absolutely an inherited disorder.
1: Okay, and so now we're going to ask Dr. Buxbaum to tell us what he his research is about.
3: So my name is Joseph Buxbaum from the Siever Autism Center at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York, and uh, it's it's a center that really does just what you've heard from our my co-panel members here, which is we try and do molecular work, work in model systems, and we try and translate that into clinical practice. Um, One of the things we focus a lot on is a gene called SHANK3. SHANK3 is mutated in about half a percent to one percent of kids with autism or other developmental disorders, which sounds like a tiny fraction, but it turns out that's quite high in terms of the different causes of autism. Each one doesn't account for more than one or two percent or less of autism.
1: Each Genetic?
3: Each genetic cause that we know of. uh So, um, but what we hope to do with genetic causes of autism like Fragile X or SHANK 3 is learn enough about the pathways that Dr. DeChico Bloom was talking about to understand what goes wrong generally and then develop uh, novel interventions that will improve uh, for autism across the boards.
2: So even if they didn't have a known genetic cause?
3: Exactly. And a good example that people often bring out is that mutations in a certain gene that's the target of statins uh, is incredibly rare but everybody who has high blood pressure, sorry, who has high cholesterol, benefits from statin therapies. The number of people who have the mutation in the HMG-CoA reductase gene is really infinitesimal, but it's sufficient to learn about how cholesterol is metabolized that you can actually develop a, it becomes a target for drugs that help people broadly. Right. So that's kind of what we think about with shank three. And And that's a very
2: good analogy. Mm
3: -hmm. So what we've done with shank three is, We've mutated the gene in mice, and that's one of the incredible powers of genetically modified animals, that we can create or recreate a human disease in an animal.
2: By, by knocking out the gene?
3: Knocking out is the kind of the, 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 I like that. the, the uh, slang we use. Uh, it's called the targeted disruption. We actually have tools to disrupt a specific gene in a mouse, or now other organisms as well. And then we see we can ask very specific questions about the mouse's brain behavior, about its behavior more broadly, and then we can learn about you know the exact molecular and cellular pathways in the brain that are responsive to changes in levels of that protein or gene. And so with Shank 3 what we found was a kind of communication between nerve cells, which which we call glutamate transmission, is changed and altered, and that lent itself almost naturally to a couple of test or lead compounds we tried, both of which worked in the mouse. And one of which, which is called IGF one, we already have, is already approved for use in kids for other disorders. Can you tell our audience what
1: IGF one is?
3: So IGF one is a hormone. It's called insulin-like growth factor one. It's a growth factor. Um, it has effects on growth and so kids who have short stature are sometimes given this drug if they're if it's a real kind of clinical short stature they're given this drug to increase their growth rate it also has important roles in the brain it actually goes from the blood into the brain and actually affects brain development and it's there that we think it might be useful in our shank three mice and we're able to inject it into the mice peripherally in the bloodstream and show very profoundly positive effects on things that went wrong when we knocked out that gene in the mice and that's where that kind of result, especially for a drug that's with a lot of safety data, so it's not a new investigational drug, it's an established drug or repurposing as it's sometimes called, we're able to go to the FDA and say, we think that the body of evidence about safety of this drug in kids is so vast that we think it would be appropriate to get approval to go forward to look at kids with a Shankler mutation. And we just received that approval.
1: I was just gonna ask you. So
3: so you now have approval to use this yes. and you are doing studies on children. Right. So we have had over the past eighteen months or two years about thirty families come through with Shang 3 mutations and we've done a very detailed characterization of prospectively of what they look like. You've heard that about 30 to 40% of kids with fragile X uh, present with autism. About 80% of kids with a shank three mutation present with autism. And some of them are non-syndromic, which means that you couldn't tell that they had a a shank three mutation. They look like any other kid with autism. So how do you know? Well, we can do the genetic test. Uh So those families that are so far far we've seen 30, we have another 30 lined up, are the families who we're gonna turn back to of course, it'll be a national call, but turn back to and say, would you like to participate in this, you know, first in, well, not first in man, but first in children with shank3 mutations, uh, trial around this compound.
2: That's interesting. So you, so because this drug is available,
3: uh,
2: and it's now off-label use, I guess, is that correct?
3: It, it's, yes. I mean,
2: as a physician, we I would call it an off-label use. Do you anticipate that you're going to see pediatricians using it? Just,
3: well... That, or,
2: pay, you know, families turning to so pediatricians?
4: It,
3: the, the answer is it's always a risk. I mean, one of the, you know, as soon as information goes out about these sorts of um, results, families want to try these things. They want the best for their children. There's no question about it. We encourage them to do it in a controlled clinical trial situation mm-hmm. so that the end, at you know, when a year goes by, we can say something definitive. Should, yeah. um, the problem with more... I'm not a clinician, and and others can comment on it much better. But the problem, I think, with um, off-label use that's not in a controlled design is that these anecdotal effects are often uh, too positive and may not reflect accurately how effective the drug really is. Mm -hmm. Having
1: having said that, do you think there's going to be broad application of IGF-1 to other genetic mutations that are found in...
3: So that's certainly our hope, and a lot of people in the field, and the panel was talking about it earlier, are beginning to look at connections between Fragile X and Shank 3, between Shank 3 and sclerosis that Dr. DeChico Bloom mentioned earlier, and there's emerging data that they all do somehow link up. So we all hope that a drug that works really well in 1% also works well in a broader percentage, and actually the clinical trials in Fragile X are divided now, for example, with uh, our baclofen between kids who have Fragile X and kids who have autism without Fragile X. And we're planning to do the same thing with this drug.
2: So if it worked, would the, the child need to stay on it through adulthood, or do you... I mean, I'm just trying to just think about, is it that that you they need to look... We know so much social learning goes on developmentally during a certain period. I was very curious about the, the test that you spoke about. or when you are able to do a knockout fragile mouse, that they uh, don't, that they, it's not that they aren't social. They just don't stay around long enough that they, uh, oh, okay. Well, one of the presenters was presenting about Fragile X, that um, it's not that they're not motivated to be social, but they don't stay around long enough. I was thinking then they don't learn, actually, so that social learning doesn't get laid down in some kind of a way.
4: Well, let me me, uh, bring up an an issue you just raised about how long you'd treat and the excitement that might come from such a trial. Uh, I think it's it's really important for us to be cautious here. Um, And I'm not sure we want to think about how long to treat before we know that it's a good idea to treat. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I think, as you've heard uh, already, um, IGF-1 that is going to be studied here may be applicable to other children with other genetic causes or unknown causes. However, it's, it's likely it's only going to affect or be useful for a subgroup of them. And so what, what we don't want to give the impression is that IGF-1, anybody with a, a mental disability and an autism spectrum, should go out and use it. Uh, we've been down that road and it's, it, it's inappropriate it's, and it's, in fact, dangerous. Uh, to be giving medications uh, or drugs that that are effective in some to, to everybody for long times. So, I mean, there are... This is great enthusiasm because we've learned about a pathway, used a model of an animal, found a drug that helps the animal and now trying it in children with the same gene defect. But I think, as Dr. Buxbaum has alluded to, not every child with Shank 3 deficiency may respond. Right. And so... Uh, The other genetic models, tuberous sclerosis, for example, or Fragile X, where there are compounds that are gonna work that probably only work for some of them, Uh because it's complex. Mm -hmm. And so if you present to a clinic with autism spectrum, there may be one, two, even three things that might help you, but not another person. And hopefully, by the kinds of studies that are being done carefully, understanding the, the genotype, what genes a person has, and their particular symptom set that you might choose based on their genetic makeup or their behaviors, which might be better for them. Mm -hmm. And so what you don't want is people having this wholesale idea that autism spectrum treat with drug X.
2: But you know what, as a clinician, I found quite exciting about what it is you did choose is we have a way of thinking about something like this with a short stature child, right? Where you actually, the pediatrician did treat, you treat between, we know exactly, you read the bones, you know the long, you know, and so you know exactly how to treat it. May, it may or may not help, but you know what it could do, and you know how long to use it. If the child past, I don't know, whatever age twelve, I think it is different ages. Right. You don't. So the child has to be in the window, and kind of you know the risks and the benefit. You're not really talking about
4: something that. R- r- right, and, and you, you're talking. You, you're making a very good comparison here. We know the period of growth, prepubertal. We know when the, bone, the, the, the growth plate of the bone right. closes, and therefore IGF-1 after that point is not helpful. Right. There's, no, there's no system that responds. But we don't know what those markers in the brain are. We don't know when that plasticity that we're ta- tapping into it, it completes, and or whether or not there are other systems where right. continuing drug may have a negative effect mm-hmm. because it's a behaviorally defined we're not mm-hmm. counting, you know, looking at right. bone density. And, mm-hmm. and so we're all struggling in the field, uh, as Dr. Bucksbaum talked about earlier, about what the markers are, uh-huh. the outcome.
2: But we don't want to get lost in the lab, and we don't want to be overexcited uh, yeah. uh, out right. in the field. So right. it's a real... And what are the risks of IgA?
3: So again, I'm not a clinician, and I, I need to say that, but, you know, IgF1... Uh, from, we have somebody at Mount Sinai who's an expert on growth factors and growth hormones, and IGF 1 is generally safe. Uh, you do look at some metabolic markers to make sure that everything uh, is going okay. With any compound, nobody really knows, nobody really likes to think about treatment for years and years because people, you can always imagine some long term risk uh, with any drug. And um, so I think with IGF one or any any treatment in autism besides behavioral, people are thinking about you know can we target a critical window right. that makes a change that's persistent. Right. right. You know. Uh, is my, it generic,
2: by the way? Is is this? Uh,
3: not no. It's not. Uh-huh.
2: Even though it's been out a long time, right? This is.
3: I don't think. Well, maybe it is. I was
2: surprised for for when you said the cost. I had assumed, in fact. Um, but I had a patient recently, and they did say it's still very expensive. But yeah, I have a this feeling this is that, an old patent. This is not. Yeah,
3: I have a feeling patent. that the market is so small that probably mm-hmm. even if it is generic, maybe not a lot of generics have jumped in. That's possible. I but okay. we're talking. We we're talking off mic here now. I think. <laughs> <don't>
1: <laughs> We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone want to add anything? Actually, I wanted to ask a question, which uh, I didn't know if it was an appropriate question or not. But you all um, mentioned how you find genes, and that you these genes are present in certain populations, and then you state that they're responsible for the disease. But I wonder if you're finding just a, uh, a gene that gets uh, is mutated in these people if that's the cause, or it is one of a set of other issues that are present in these children?
0: I think probably the the most uh, striking case is that of Fragile X syndrome. So it isn't that those with Fragile X syndrome do or do not have the gene. We all have the gene, and what happens is there's an an expansion, you know, a sort of molecular expansion that causes the gene to be turned off, and that's the problem. Um, But even in normal controls of some of the data that we're speaking about at the conference this year, um, we see differential gene expression. So um, the other piece of that is in, in a disorder like autism, it isn't one gene, it's multiple genes. And even in a single gene disorder like fragile X syndrome, it's likely not just one gene. There are multiple background gene effects that haven't necessarily been identified yet. So we, we are aware of many other genes that interact with fMR1, many. Um, so this is a, although we like to lay it out as, as a very simple model system, it, it really isn't. So to understand it fully, we're going to have to do a lot of other investigations with a lot of other genes as well. And the epigenetics of the gene? And then the epigenetics are also okay. going to come into play, correct. Yeah.
3: But it, but it is a, another form of spectrum in the sense that there are some genes that are such high risk that basically, effectively, if you have a mutation in that gene, you're going to have a severe developmental disorder. And there are genes that we call less penetrant, which, need, which require multiple factors for there to be a full expression of a disorder. And I think on, on the very h- very highly penetrant side, certainly Shank 3 is one of the top in terms of highly penetrant, and so is fMMr, FMR1. And
2: right. Down syndrome? <induced>
3: And downstreams are, of course, highly penetrant, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you have things that we are quite sure are contributing to risk significantly, but generally, if they increase risk by fourfold or threefold, there must be other factors that layer in to really kind of produce the full syndrome at the end. Mm -hmm. So that, too, even genetic risk is a spectrum of sorts. For our audience, I would
1: like to focus in a little bit on the good news because as I was listening to you all speak, there was good news out of this and <laughs> news that should um, be of interest to the general audience that you are coming up with, I don't want to say cures, but treatments. Mo- models of, of disease. Yep. But you, you, Dr. Boxer, have a specific treatment about to
3: be implemented. Right. right.
1: Can, you, can you tell us just a
3: little bit about how that's going to happen? So... Um, I am an optimist and I also recognize that we need to manage expectation uh, for a variety of reasons. One is because the more systematic we are, the more likely we are to get to where we want to go. We do, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, when we disrupt this gene in mice, we see changes in the brain that are corrected following two weeks injection of a compound called IGF-1, and that allows us, that, that provides sufficient information to go back to the FDA and say, we think this is something that's worth trying. And they agreed, uh, they gave us a waiver, effectively, to say go ahead, and that means we can turn around and develop what we call a randomized clinical trial uh, in patients where the patient either receives a placebo or the active compound for three months, then there's a a washout period, a delay, and then we switch arms. So if somebody who in the first part got the placebo now gets the active treatment, the person who got the active treatment now gets placebo, and we look at behavioral and other measures before the treatment, in the middle, and at the end. And we try and see if there was a significant improvement in the active IGF-1 arm compared to the placebo arm. I'm a little lost. (laughs) (laughs) But <laughs> <laughs> so
2: there's room for optimism.
3: I, I am an optimist. You're beginning uh, treatments. We are beginning treatments. And, now what? You're,
1: and you're beginning treatments on people hoping to see
3: dramatic results. Hoping to see results. And are there other, <laughs> other well, sorts me, of clinical trials going on like this? Well, One heard heard with
2: fragile Quite so. a few with
3: fragile X. Mm-hmm. Turbosclerosis,
2: there are I clinical see. trials. So, really, yeah. there's a lot going on in, in your field There's a lot compared going on. to, say, 10 years ago.
1: So, is there a database that exists for people who have uh, children who are suffering from certain diseases where they can call and find out where are their clinical trials that are appropriate for those children with those diseases that are now not being able to be treated?
3: The, the, the NIH, uh, there's something called clinical clinicaltrials.gov, which which maintains a database of clinical trials. And for many of these disorders with a monogenic cause, there are actually advocacy groups like the Fragile X Society, the um, Phenal-McDermid Syndrome Society, which is the Shank 3 group, and there are others. And so networking with other family members who are affected by a similar condition or going to clinicaltrials.gov is the best way to find out about the state of the field. Okay. So...
2: Thank you very much.
3: Pleasure for joining us.
2: Thank you.
1: Pleasure.